0: You may be seated, dear friends. And while we love our children very, very much, we want to dismiss the little ones up through grade four to some wonderful adults who've been preparing to teach them. I passed a billboard this week as I was going to the funeral on Thursday, and the billboard said, "Mark the date on your calendar, May 21st." Have you been hearing the buzz across our country? So, oh, by the way, the buzz is that the Lord Jesus is returning on May 21st. You know what I'm talking about, right? So the question is will we be back here next Sunday, the 22nd, to meet? (laughs) I don't know all the background of those billboards that you've seen and the, the advertisements in newspapers across the country, but I know Jesus. What about you? And so if it's this afternoon or next Saturday or 10 years from now, I'm ready. What about you? That's what we want to talk about this morning. Are you ready? You see, there's been a question in our world for more than 2,000 years. You see it on the screen. Uh, The question is, who is this man whose name was Jesus? Uh, Since Palm Sunday, we have been looking at some of the biblical answers to that question, you may recall. Uh, We began in a place called Caesarea Philippi. That's what it looks like today. That picture was taken by one of you in this room who was with me there in Israel about a year ago. Uh, The niches, as you know, in that hillside were places where statues uh, were placed, statues representing the gods, the deities of peoples all around the world in the first century because that was a crossroads of commerce. People would come there business people, travelers from all over the world and they would stop there because there was a bounty of fresh water there and they would replenish themselves and their animals and while there, they would worship their various deities. And Jesus went there one day with some of his disciples and in the midst of them all asked the question, so who do people say I am? One of his disciples, Peter, responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, the 16th chapter. Easter Sunday, we went to a different place a couple of weeks ago because on Easter Sunday, you celebrate the empty tomb, right? This is what the the garden looks like uh, today around what many believe to be the empty tomb. And in that place, a woman, Mary Magdalene, she encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and when he spoke her name, you may remember she responded not by saying Jesus, but she said, Rabboni, which means teacher. Her life had been changed by his teachings. John records it for us there in the 20th chapter of John. A a week later, Jesus appeared again. This time in the city of Jerusalem in an upper room, where the disciples had all gathered together doors and windows locked John tells us and this time it was the disciple Thomas and Jesus was there with his friends suddenly and he approached Thomas who had said I won't believe it until I see him with my own eyes and in fact I want to put my fingers in the nail prints and so he invited Thomas come forward my friend take a close look and put your fingers right there and Thomas's response was my lord and my God. John recorded it for us in his 20th chapter. Last week was Mother's Day, do you remember? And if you were here, I invited a number of women onto the platform to help us to consider the the various stages of Mary's life and how she saw Jesus as she aged You'll remember several of the names that she knew for Jesus were given to her before she even ever knew she was pregnant. Jesus was one of those names. The Son of the Most High God, the angel Gabriel had said. The Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. The Savior who is Christ the Lord, the angels had announced. The king of the Jews is who the Magi had come to worship. Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, through her lifetime, I believe, wrestled with that question. So who is this man that I've had the privilege of birthing? She alone stood at the cross, as you know, convinced that he was who he claimed to be, God incarnate. Today I'd like us to consider What the man who wrote much of the New Testament thought. His name was Paul. He came to be known as the Apostle Paul. Could I invite you to open God's Word with me to the book of Romans in the New Testament, the first chapter? If you didn't happen to bring a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you, and maybe someone would tell me what page Romans chapter 1 is on, please, in one of those Bibles. 795. Thank you, Brother Ken. Paul used many phrases in his writings for Jesus. The one that is referred to here that I've taken as Christ Jesus our Lord. I've selected that particular picture because uh, it reminded me when I looked through my collection of pictures of who Paul must have been like, a take-charge kind of a guy in no matter what setting. And we'll see that as we look into God's Word today. Christ Jesus our Lord, proclaimed by the Apostle Paul, Uh, During his Christ following lifetime, you know that we have his story in the book of Acts, and then we have his writings in all of his letters. Romans chapter 1. He's writing, of course, to Christians in the most important city on the face of the planet in that day, the capital of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. People who lived there who knew they were Roman citizens were prideful of their pedigree, their heritage. And, of course, for Paul, one of the things he had wrestled greatly with, who, who is this man? Where did he come from? How could he possibly be God if he was born here on our planet? May I paraphrase Romans chapter 1, verse 1 in this way. I am Paul. I am a servant of Christ Jesus. I am called to be an apostle. And I am set apart for the gospel of God. Now, if you know the story of Paul, you know that he didn't always think that way. In fact, if he had written it just a few years earlier, this is what it might have sounded like taken from the rest of his writings. "'I am Saul of Tarsus, proud to be born into the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am totally opposed to this Jesus, who some claim is the Christ.'" I reject it. He is not our Messiah. I am called and trained to be a Pharisee, and I'm one of the best, the leader of our people, the teacher of God's truth to our people, and I will raise up the next generation of great Pharisees. I am set apart by God for the destruction of this Jesus movement and this thing they call the gospel, and I have committed my life to removing from the face of this planet any memory of the name of Jesus. That's how he would have written it, I believe, based on his writings. Would you agree? So what made the change? How could he write this in Romans chapter 1? What made the change was, my friends, an encounter with the living, risen Jesus Christ on the road to a city that is in the news today a lot, Damascus, Syria. And on that road, he was going there, as you know, to arrest and take into custody and take back to Jerusalem any person, man, woman, or young person, who was courageous enough to acknowledge themselves as a follower of Jesus Christ. And back in Jerusalem, they would be tried and, if possible, beaten and imprisoned because he was determined to wipe out this heresy. That's what he thought it was. But he had an encounter with a blinding light, you'll remember, And the light spoke to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He responded in a very interesting way. Do you remember how he responded? Who who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's all he said. Would you consider that Paul knew Jesus? He was a contemporary of Jesus. I believe it's very possible because he had studied in Jerusalem that he had heard Jesus preach many times. I think it's even possible from the crowds he had stepped forward and said, you're a liar. What you're saying is not true. I reject it. He might have even gone face to face, nose to nose with Jesus. I believe he may have seen some of the miracles and I believe he would have rejected them. There's only one explanation. Demons themselves are doing this. God is not in this man. Understand, please, how determined his heart was To wipe out anyone on this planet like you and me who believes that he really is Jesus, the Son of God. That's why this statement is so profound. I am Paul. I am a servant of Jesus Christ, no longer opposed to him. I am called to be an apostle, and I am set apart for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Amen? And he goes on, as you see, and he says, This gospel, he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets. Now, he would know that because he had studied the prophets earnestly, so this was a huge change in his thinking regarding his son, God's son, who as to his human nature, can you imagine how hard it was for him to say that if he was dictating or write it if he wrote it with his own hand? Human nature? God with a human nature? It makes no sense at all unless the incarnation is true. God actually came here and wrapped himself in a human nature. But Paul was convinced it is true, as God claimed it to be, Emmanuel, God with us. He was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God. How? By his resurrection from the dead. Paul was determined to help us know his resurrection is the proof text. The tangible, proving evidence that this is God among us, raised from the dead, and therefore pay attention to whatever he says because it's God-speaking is what Paul was saying. And then he names it Jesus Christ, Jesus Rescuer, Christ Messiah, our, plural, Lord, our, those who with me, Paul was saying, are followers of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, our King, our Sovereign. Our majesty do you see it and then as you see in your notes as you keep reading through the book of romans there's other great powerful scriptures that come from that therefore we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ because of who he is and what he accomplished there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in a relationship with christ jesus our lord and where is jesus now oh my he is at the right hand of god interceding for us Powerful statement. Who is this man? As he was writing his letters, all of them, he keeps revisiting this question Who is this man? May I invite you to turn to one of those letters which is so unusual? It's the book of Colossians. Here's why it's unusual His letter to the Corinthians, two of them, his letters to the Ephesians, his letter to the little church in Philippi, may I suggest his favorite, those were all letters written to people that he knew in places where he had been and where he had brought the gospel and the church had been established because he went there, but not the Colossians. He'd never been there when he wrote this letter, as far as we know. He was not responsible in any way, personally, for the establishment of that church. And so do you see there in Colossians chapter 1 that he writes... (coughs) Verse 3, we, meaning he and Timothy, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, our, our friends that we've heard about in Colossae, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the love and the faith that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. (laughs) A little later in that chapter, beginning in the 50th verse, it seems that Paul wants to make it very clear who is this man, Jesus. And so look at verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image the visible image of the invisible god second chapter same book ninth verse for in christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form he wants to make real sure that the colossians understand god himself in all of his fullness is jesus he goes on and he says in verse 16 for by him jesus all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Some of the invisible things, of course, would be the angels and the faraway planets and stars that we can't see, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, those are angelic ranks. All things were created by him and, what does it say? For him. It means for his great delight he created it all. For a demonstration of his magnificent power, he created it all. He, Jesus, who walked among us, created it all. He is before all things. He pre-exists everything because it started with him. And in him, all things hold together. The living glue, if you will, that holds everything in perfect balance and order. He is the head of the body, the church. That's us. Followers of Jesus Christ worldwide, in every generation, He is our head. Amen. Our sovereign, our leader, our Lord. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, meaning all of us will raise from the dead as well. But He has preceded us, so that in everything He might have what is it? The supremacy. The supremacy. Paul was desperate that the folks in Colossae and every living human being who would ever read this letter would understand who this man is God among us, God Himself. So, if I was to hand you the pen, and I would say, take as much time as you want to, and write to the fullest extent in your mind and understanding who is Jesus, what would you write? Now, let me give you one more. If you turn over just a couple of pages to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. This time, Paul is writing to one person, a dear friend, a young friend that he's been pouring his life into, Timothy. Oh, he knows that Timothy will share the letter with many others, which is why we have it. And look at what he writes beginning in verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. There it is again. Christ Messiah. Jesus, ransomer, rescuer, savior, deliverer, our plural, because he has saved us, many of us. Lord, King, Majesty, Sovereign, Supreme, Master. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength. Paul recognized that the journey of life that he had lived, which was very painful, as you know, beaten multiple times, shipwrecked, imprisoned, the physical strength that he had received to withstand all of that, God himself had given him. The emotional strength that he had been able to be rejected from place after place, God had given him. The spiritual strength to battle the dark kingdom, God had given him. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. He recognizes that God has called him out and commissioned him, appointed him to serve him. Even though, now this is very, very important, even though, verse 13, I was once can you imagine how hard it was now for him to write this or dictate this? I was once a blasphemer. That's a person who takes the name of the Lord God in vain. It's a person in their language who speaks in a mocking way against God. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. So if I was to give you the pencil, And I would say, write a description of who you were before Jesus transformed you, if you've met Jesus. Or write a description of who you know you would be if Jesus was not your Savior and your Lord. I wonder what you'd write. I thank God for the courage of this man to put it right there in public view for all of us. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man I was shown mercy. Mercy means you don't get the punishment you deserve, right? Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord, grace means you get unmerited favor, unearned blessing and kindness. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. You see, what he's saying is he is strong in his service of God because God strengthens him. He is transformed from who he knows he was and would have been had God not changed him by God's mercy through Jesus. He is saved now, he's saying here, from his sin. Look, verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into our world for the purpose of saving sinners. Amen? In my Bible, there's a a dash, a line after the word sinners. I wonder if there is in your Bible. I admit to you, I don't know exactly why. But I I wonder if it reflects possibly a pause in his dictation. And I wonder if in his mind he said, it'd be enough if I just stop right there. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a good truth statement. But I wonder if he thought, since I'm hanging out there anyway, acknowledging who I was... I just may as well go ahead and say it because the Holy Spirit has convicted me. Of whom I was and am the worst, he says. He says, I'm embarrassed to say it, but it's true. I was the worst of all possible sinners because I was determined to wipe the memory of the name of Jesus Christ off the face of this planet. What he should have done is wiped me off the planet. But instead, right, instead he kept me breathing And thinking until finally I came to realize what an idiot I was. And I came to experience his mercy and his grace and his transformation. Amen? When's the last time you took a few minutes to just say, God, thank you. I didn't deserve it. I know what a mess I was and would have been. Thank you for loving me and rescuing me and doing your refining, transforming work in me. Huh? But, verse 16, but for that very reason, what reason? The reason of transformation. I was shown mercy so that in me, Paul says, the worst of sinners, there it is, he says it again, (laughs) Christ Jesus might display, I love that word, display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. You, if you have trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior, are a trophy of his grace, a display of his splendor, it says in Isaiah 61, right? Now think about that. So, who are you a display or a trophy to? Well, it starts in your own home, right? Your family, your friends, your coworkers. But may I suggest to the dark kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ loves it. May I suggest to hold you and I up and say, Satan, take a look. I rescued this person from your clutches and I have transformed them by my power. They are a trophy of my grace. Huh? Think about that. And then he says, now, verse 17, to the king eternal. That's Jesus. Immortal, that's Jesus. Invisible, right now, invisible to our eyes, but reigning from his throne room in heaven. The only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And Paul is saying that is now my life mission to live for his glory and his honor forever and ever. Don't know if you've ever been to a military funeral. I don't know how close you have ever lived in relationship to U.S. Army personnel. At West Point, and I've had the privilege of being there several times, there is this phrase that is everywhere uh, on the campus. Right, Brother Jim? Duty, honor, country. And that's what I experienced when I went on Thursday to represent you, our church family, along with my bride. uh, And there were uh, two from our choir who went as well, Marion and Bill. And Joel Pantojas also went. Joel, as you know, has a son who has served in the army, and he has served as well. Matthew was honored. A brigadier general stood before us and thanked Rachel and uh, the younger family and the Hermanson family for the service of this courageous young man who gave his life For people whose language he could not speak as far as I know. Only a few days before his first wedding anniversary. Anxious to be back with his wife. Paul says, It is now my life mission to live for his honor. Even if it means living my life in dangerous places unwelcomed and unthanked, even if it means going all the way to giving my life for his glory. This summer, I'm going to be encouraging you to read two books, one of them, Experiencing the Resurrection by Henry Blackaby, and the other, Radical, and both of them are available at the Welcome Center May I read to you a couple of paragraphs in closing? We sometimes say things such as, the safest place for me to be is right in the center of God's will. When we say that, we think, if it's dangerous, God must not be in it. If it's risky, if it's unsafe, if it's costly, it must not be God's will for me. But what if these factors are actually the criteria? by which we determine something is God's will for me? What if we began to look at the design of God as the most challenging option before me? What if the center of God's will is in reality the most uncomfortable place for me to be? To everyone wanting a safe, untroubled, comfortable life free from danger, I give you a warning. Be careful with Jesus. The challenges in our lives will increase in proportion to the depth of our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's spiritual growth. Maybe that is why we too often sit back and settle for a casual relationship with Christ with routine religion in church. It's safe there. And the world likes us there, The world likes us when we are pursuing everything they are pursuing, even if we do put a Christian spin on it. As long as Christianity looks like the American dream, we will have very few problems in most of this world. The reward of the American dream is safety and security and success found in more comfort and better stuff and greater prosperity, but the reward of Christ trumps all these things and beckons us to live for an eternal safety, security, and satisfaction that far outweighs everything, anything the world has to offer us. Jesus reminded his disciples that their safety Was not found in the comforts of this world, but in the control of a sovereign God over this world. Would you agree with that? We can rest confident in the fact that nothing will happen to us in this world apart from the gracious will of a sovereign God. Nothing. Do you agree? We have nothing to fear because God is sovereign. Jesus knows every detail of your life and he cares for you deeply, you have nothing to fear. Indeed, God knows every detail of our lives, and when we step out in faith to follow him, he will show us that our greatest security is not found in the comforts we can manufacture in this world, but in the faithful provision of Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the only one who knows our needs and the only one who's able to meet our needs in every way. Now, may I take it from a paragraph or two in a book to reality? 28 years ago today was Mother's Day, 1983. My wife Dawn and I lived in the Chicago area, and we had spent much of the preceding days sitting at the bedside of a dear woman who was dying. A young woman, 54. She, in fact, passed away into eternity on Saturday night. It would have been last night, about 7 o'clock. That woman was my mother. And in those days because I knew my mother pretty well, Mom, I need to know, do you really think this is true? You're dying and you know it. Is this really true? Is there really a heaven? Is there really a Jesus? As you're looking death in the face, what do you really believe right now? Among other things, she said to me, I have a choice. I can lay here and I can say it's just a whole bunch of stories. Because I've never seen Jesus with my own eyes, I've never touched him with my own hands, nor have I ever met anyone who has, it's just stories. Because I've never been to heaven, because I've never met anyone who has been to heaven, it's only stories. And I can die here in a few hours or days. To what? Or I can lay here saying, but I know it's true because it's changed my life so many times in my lifetime. And I know he's real because he's my savior and he has changed my life. And I can lay here preparing to die knowing I'm stepping into his presence, whether it's now or tomorrow or the next day. 28 years ago today, Mother's Day, was a painful day for us, but a celebrating day. Because mother had stepped into God's presence with profound confidence and challenged her family to make sure they understood what they believed was true and lived it. Those conversations are part of the reason I'm standing here. That's why I want to give you a challenge. I want to invite you to join me on a challenge. Here's the challenge. Think of a Christian friend you know could be here in this church, could be at your workplace, could be somewhere far away that you connect on Skype with from time to time. But a Christian friend you know who will walk the journey of this summer with you, both reading both books, connecting every week for a cup of coffee to talk about life, to pray with each other, to talk about what God's teaching you and where God is stretching you. And then, as you're meeting, start talking about who does one or both of you know but that person doesn't know Jesus that you could invite to join you. I'm going to set a target date, the 4th of July, that you would invite one other person into this little team of two, so now there's three of you, only this other person doesn't know Jesus, and this person is going to sit and have a cup of coffee every week with you two, and maybe that person will start reading You're also going to be reading the summer scripture journey. And as you're sharing life with each other, this person is going to have the chance to see the reality, the truth of Jesus Christ in your life. And wouldn't it be great if that person came to know Jesus Christ as his or her Savior before Labor Day? Huh? Get the idea? Summer Challenge 2011. We're reading, we're sharing with each other, and we're inviting a friend into the journey. You're already thinking about who you're going to invite into the journey? I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you have had that remarkable privilege of actually leading someone to Jesus Christ. And you've watched them as they have trusted Jesus to be their Savior. And you've seen the light go on in their eyes. And then you've watched them over time as their life has changed like Paul's. There's nothing better, is there? And my prayer is that every one of us in this room might have that experience before the end of the summer. But you see, it all has to start with your being able to answer the question, who is this man, Jesus, to you? See, in closing, let me give you this thought. It's wonderful to read those great truth statements. In some places in the world, they're carved in marble on walls. He is the image of the invisible God but it has to move from intellectual truth to life-changing reality as it moves into your heart. And you acknowledge him as your Savior, inviting him to be your Savior, and your Lord submitting yourself to him, and then he does that life-transforming work, right? And I'm convinced that there are millions of folks in our world who have intellectual allegiance to the truth of what the Bible says, but it has never moved from here to here, and they are not yet saved. They have not yet trusted Jesus Christ to be their Savior. They acknowledge the truth, but they have never invited the truth to be truth for them in their life. How about you? Let's talk to him right now about that. Lord Jesus Christ.